The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, John. Hi, Mel. Now, John, inflation, right? A lot of people have been expecting CPI in the UK to fall and fall quite significantly. The whole transient argument is back. Oh, look, energy prices are falling, fuel prices are falling, oil prices are falling. And so what we're going to see is lower inflation numbers coming through. And we kind of have an itsy-weeny tiny bit, but today's numbers came in significantly higher than people expected, right? We now have had CPI above 10% for months and months and months, give or take. And it doesn't seem to be falling back. You've written about this, right? What's your explanation? I know what mine is, by the way. Well, I mean, it's just that inflation keeps coming in higher than the Bank of England kind of wishful thinking (laughs) makes it it happen. I mean, in April, we will see a sharp fall and it will go below double-digit rates because effectively, arithmetically, it simply cannot uh, stay at the rate it's at now but it'll probably fall to something like seven and a half or eight percent and you know that'll sound like a lot but it's still higher than the bank had hoped it would be you know as recently as february mm. um so and, and yeah, it's worth so it's saying just, it's worth reminding everybody that the bank of england target is two percent and that inflation is currently five times the bank of england target i mean this represents a policy fail failure of such stunning scale. I'm amazed we're not talking about it every single day. We talk a lot about the inflation numbers, but how often do you hear someone on the radio in the morning saying, wow, five times the Bank of England target. Can we get someone from the Bank of England on to explain it? That's like getting someone from one of the top managers of the NHS on to explain the the mess up at the NHS, right? We never hear from them. Well, it's true, and nobody really talks about it during the press conferences after the uh, the interest rate meetings either. Um, I mean, I think that's interesting in itself because there is that sense or that understanding that an awful lot of this stuff is beyond the control of central banks. Um, so the fact that you set a 2% target doesn't mean that you're going to get 2%. And it's almost the fact that everyone takes that. Yeah, I mean, everyone seems to take that for granted to the point where you're not actually holding the central bank governor accountable for something that, in theory, he's accountable for. And I mean, he even has to write those stupid little letters to the chancellor, you know, every couple of months saying, oh, you know, I'm sorry that inflation is, you know, below 1% or above 3%. Uh, here's why. It's basically not my fault. <laughs> so, so what's the point? What is the point of the Bank of England? What is the point of any central banks? You've literally just I, talked them out of a job. Well, I mean... I mean, they have one job. Control inflation. I don't really think that central banks are necessarily a good thing in the first place. Uh, you know, it's. I don't know what the mechanism is that you would replace them with. Um but, you know, they're already basically chasing the market the whole time anyway. Yeah, but I suppose um, so, this tells us that we're, we're not quite as close to peak rates as we would have expected. Now, listen, there's one, one number that really, really stands out in these inflation numbers that we've had this week, and that is food inflation, over 19%. An absolutely extraordinary level of inflation. And also, I think we can be pretty certain that farmers 
are not seeing a 19% rise in the prices that they're getting. So this is part of this new dynamic that we're beginning to hear a lot about, greedflation, where companies are taking the opportunity of crisis and disaster to effectively profiteer. You know, they did it during the pandemic, they did it at the beginning of the war, and they are still doing it. They're shoveling up their profit margins to increasingly uh, supernormal levels uh, to take advantage of this sort of slightly chaotic period in, in time. And that seems like something that surely can't continue. And if it, if it does continue, there will surely be political pressure on the corporate world to just stop. I mean, you would think, um, particularly food inflation, because food inflation is extremely visible. Uh, you know, I don't know anyone, regardless of, you know, kind of wealthy or not wealthy, who doesn't look at their shopping bill at the moment and say, hold on a minute. You know, last week that was, you know, about 10% less than it is today. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, I, I, especially given that, you know, the government has this stated aim of having the inflation rate by the end of the year, uh, there's got to be some political pressure to bear as long as they can find, you know, a, a smoking gun for this stuff. Mm. Well, I mean, this is the sort of time when you would expect margins to be falling. You'd be looking at the cost pressures, you'd be looking at the pressure on consumers at the same time, and you'd be saying, this is exactly when you expect the profit cycle to turn and, and margins to be lower, instead of which they're going up, up, up and up again. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I know that, I mean, one reason I think that might be the case is simply because I think that consumers are probably in better shape than we are given the impression that they are. And so that's one reason why there's perhaps less pushback against these higher prices are you than a you cost may of, expect. Hang on, are you a cost of living crisis denier, John? I'm not, I'm not as much denying that there's a cost of living crisis, but I guess I'm denying that people uh, are in the sort of are unable to spend. I mean, everyone's still got jobs, and uh, there are some. People are getting a certain amount of extra wages, and so far, to be fair, they still seem to be able to pay their mortgages and things like that as well. Uh, I mean, there's still a lot of fixed rates to come off this year. Something's got to explain how these companies. I mean, particularly, I mean, the supermarket sector in the UK, like the banking sector, is pretty competitive. You know, so so if if they're managing to push through super high, super normal profit margin prices, then that means that somebody must be sucking it up somewhere. And if the consumer is sucking it up, it, it implies that they have enough money to do so. Now, I'm not, I mean, I I don't like the idea that uh, people are getting, you know, profiteered from due to this kind of confusion. And I think that if that's happening, then, you know, we, we need to look at it. You know, it's not, a, it's something that politicians should take a wee look at. Uh, John, but the fact that it's even... How about some, how about some price controls? Price controls, that's a great idea. That always, always works, works, right? Yeah. Always works. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you about rent controls, which we now have in Scotland. It's an absolute classic of the price control genre. Um, and when they first introduced rent controls in Scotland last year, I think all of those of us who have some vague knowledge of economic history, et cetera, are going, you know, this has been tried a lot of times before and it never, ever, ever works. Because if if the market is telling you via high prices that you have maybe too much demand or not enough supply, or both, you want a policy that either reduces demand or increases supply, right? And rent controls do exactly the opposite. Make stuff cheaper, you increase demand. Reduce the return to suppliers, and you reduce supply. So, you know, that seems obvious, and it's borne out by many, many case studies. So the Scottish did it anyway. And guess what? <laughs> What's happening? Well, do you know it what? It worked, didn't it? It worked this time. Yeah, this was the one time it worked because Scotland <laughs> is special. No, no, it is not working. Uh, for starters, suppliers, suppliers falling, landlords are pulling out. The build-to-rent suppliers, who uh, were just beginning to get reasonably big in Scotland, are pulling out or uh, delaying things. Uh, talking about, there was a report out from the uh, British Building Federation uh, in which uh, many of the big providers uh, noted that they found Scotland an unattractive place to think about investing because of the political risk. And then here's a, a really interesting little dynamic. Um, you can actually see what's happening to rents. And despite the fact that they have been frozen, they're still going up. Because every time a property comes to the market again, so it's a new property or it's between tenants, the landlords put up the rent as much as they possibly can 
because they know that their future potential to put up rents is limited. So you'll see in cities, Glasgow, Edinburgh, et cetera, rents going up 14, 15%. And of course, when we get to the beginning of April, when you can put your rent up by uh, 3%, everybody will put their rents up by 3%. So the cap becomes a target. Anyway, I only tell you about it because it's absolutely standard stuff. And mostly, mostly the results of policies aren't 100% predictable because there are various sort of external forces and things can, things can turn out differently. But not rent controls, not rent controls. We have so much evidence. No, I, I mean, that's, that, I think that's really interesting because well, for two reasons, like, one, actually in areas that aren't rent controlled, like, you know, the rest of the UK, it's basically the same dynamic. The, the landlords aren't generally putting rents up for sitting tenants because they're just glad they've got a sitting tenant and one particularly who's low hassle. And that's a big deal. You don't really want to kick people out over a few percent. But as soon as people leave, you know, yeah, rents are getting jacked up by double digit rates. Um, so it's... The same thing is happening, only you don't need to have imposed any rent controls. And then the thing about the 3%, it's like, as you say, it, it turns from being a cap into a target and, and everyone can raise it at the same time because they all know what the target is. And so it, effectively, you've kind of created a, a massive monopoly market because now everyone knows that there's not going to be anyone undercutting them because everyone's going to raise the rates by 3% at exactly the same time. So the tenants are a captive market. So I, I, it's just, I just wish people would think about the consequences of their policies beyond doing something that sounds good. It's oh, the John, come biggest, on. Oh, it's, it's so, so frustrating. It's you so know. frustrating. But, you know, what? I here's a prediction for you. We have decades of history showing us that rent controls don't work and, in fact, have negative effects. We have a live example, a live case study you can watch in real time in Scotland. You can see it failing. You can read the failure in the numbers. But I bet that the calls for rent controls in the rest of the UK and around the world will continue. I know that the uh, Sadiq Khan in London has been calling for them. You will see more calls for them and you will probably get rent controls in more major cities in the UK because we are so back to the 70s. Oh, yeah. I mean, Sadiq's been calling for them since before Scotland even introduced this stuff. So, yeah, I mean, he's not going to change his mind. Um, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, you're right. It's, it's all about what sounds right. good. Do you know what that tells you, landlords? <laughs> uh, there's messages here. Messages here. I'm going to write about this. In fact, I'm in the middle of writing about this. There are messages from Scotland for the rest of the UK. All these property bubbles, the high price of housing, it makes you want to do something, don't do this. And then there's a message for landlords. The government shouldn't do this, but it probably will. Take action. Yeah, although, I mean, you do sort of sit there and you think, well, look, if I'm a landlord just now, and I own a property, then on the one hand, yeah, maybe I'm going to face a bit of political hassle. On the other hand, I'm going to have a semi kind of protected market in much the same way that, you know, Facebook and all the rest of them call for regulations whenever they have, they're in the dominant position. Mm -hmm. So I know, I mean, you know, rent controls are in a funny kind of way. They, they do give you that. If you know you're going to get a nice predictable 3% uplift every single year and then an extra, you know, 10 to 20% every time somebody moves out, you know, maybe it's no such a bad, do you know a what, bad business John, to be in. I can introduce <laughs> you to quite a few people in Edinburgh who may want to sell you a two-bedroom flat. <laughs> we'll talk. <laughs> Thanks, John. Sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week's special treat, a conversation with Simon Edelson, manager of the Artemis Global Select Fund and co-manager of the Midwind Investment Trust. Actually, before we go any further, Simon, do you know, I call it the Midwind Investment Trust, but sometimes I'm tempted to call it the Midwind Investment Trust. What's the actual real answer? Because I hear both all the time. Um, well, the last time I was in Dundee, which is where... Midwind Street is. Um, the locals call it Midwind, so I'm sticking with that. You're sticking with that. Okay, brilliant. Um, and one of the things that I want to mention before we get started is that you have a fabulous record of spending long periods in uh, in the top quartile, etc. So you've had a very successful career, and now you're leaving it. 
You're retiring at the end of the year and handing all this over. And we'll talk about the person you're handing it over to briefly at the end so everyone knows whether they should sell immediately or hang on to the long term. But we'll, we'll come to that towards the end because first, obviously, we want to talk about you. So thank you for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Good. Now, I have just been looking, which I didn't mean to. I Actually, I was just... Um, uh, Googling the performance of the Midwind Investment Trust so I could see whether to be polite or rude to you at the beginning of this. And I found an interview that we did a couple of years ago, 2019, and it was very prescient, very prescient. All about um, you had recently been on stage with um, the managers of Scottish Mortgage, and you had been, we talked a little bit about that because I had also recently interviewed the managers of Scottish Mortgage, and we talked about the importance of growth and how amazing it is to be invested in exciting companies which are disruptive and growing at speed and doing brilliant things that will lead the world forward, but also about how important it is to make sure that you buy those stocks at the right price. And you had, I think at the time, just sold out of um, Amazon and a few of those sort of similar names. And obviously, Scottish Mortgage was hanging on to those. And uh, you you were right. Um well, yes, we we did think that um, valuations would come under pressure a couple of years ago. And so we sold a few of our technology shares, which we'd made a huge amount of money in over the years. Um, but we just felt that there come points in markets where everyone's in the same place, everyone's in the same stocks, everyone's pointed in the same direction. Now, this doesn't mean these companies aren't good. I mean, most of them have actually performed very well over the last few years, but the share prices have gone down because they were priced to perfection. And they were priced to perfection also against very, very artificially low interest rates. So we'd, we'd had very low interest rates before the pandemic as a result of the financial crisis at the end of the 2000s. And then those interest rates keep kept even lower. So, so a lot of what's happened over the last couple of years has just been interest rates getting where they normally are, inflation getting where it normally is, uh, but quite a big fall off in the share prices of these companies, despite those companies still being pretty good businesses. Mm, well, it's interesting, isn't it, that over this lengthy period of falling interest rates and brilliantly performing equity markets, large groups of people came to believe that their good performance was a result of brilliant stock picking and and skill, when in fact it was to a large degree a function of, we could come on to central banks in a minute actually talking about this kind of thing, whereas in fact it was a function of, of more global global economic dynamics and movements. Well, I'm afraid that that's always right. Um, uh, my old boss, Niels Torp, who started fund management in 1946, and I met him when he was about 70, and one of the things he said to me, which um, which always seemed to be a joke, but now seems to be less of a joke is that as people get wealthier, it turns out that they think that they're cleverer than they were. I mean, of course, the trouble is that some of them are just lucky. And some of the times we live in are um, easy times to make money. I, I'm afraid the last 10 years was an easy time to make money until two years ago. And the, the period we're in now is probably going to be a bit, a bit more tricky. <laughs> Ask for a bit more um, certainly a bit more valuation discipline because uh, suddenly we have the option of leaving money in the bank. I mean, you'll, lo you'll lose purchasing power if you leave money in the bank, but at least you get more than nothing. Mm, well, you saw, I'm sure, about the um, the new Apple bank account, well, not quite bank account, but deposit uh, arrangement, uh, where you can get 4.15%. Uh, indeed. Now, why would you not do that? And also, why would you not? Why would you not in your investment account? And of course, I've done this myself because I had a reasonable amount of cash in my investment accounts, um, which um, Hargreaves, Lansdowne, etc., were making a large amount of money from me by paying me no interest at all. And now I've moved it all into gilt. Uh, so you know, as presumably everybody has, and that has consequences, doesn't it? Yes. Well, well, of course, this sort of movement is what caused an American bank uh, to fall over. Quite a small American bank, but all the same, bank failures don't come along all that often. And when they do come come along, um, one ought to pay attention to them. So so this American bank called Silicon Valley Bank, um, he got a couple of things wrong, including having a city name. Um, but the main <laughs> thing was, the main thing was that the people who left the deposits there uh, were all quite switched on and all quite plugged in. And so it only took them a very short period of time to move their money out of that bank 
into money market funds and and, and uh, the equivalent of U.S. Treasuries, where they have better security and a high yield. I mean, what's not to like? Um, in fact, a friend of mine was heli skiing in Canada and saw some of the largest depositors doing it, <laughs> moving this money on their iPhones that that Friday night. So, I mean, we live in a world where. Uh, the frigidities in the system are rudely exposed from time to time. And and everyone says, well, similar things won't happen around the rest of the world. And certainly, you know, the Credit Suisse issues are, are more down to bad management than deposits moving around. But if you're moving your deposits, and I have to say, I've been moving my deposits as well. And I move my, yeah. and I check my interest rate on the small cash balances we have on the funds uh, to make sure that you're getting at least, yeah, at least three and a half percent in the mm. UK at the moment, mm. and I'm afraid most people aren't. Um, mm. So that's tip number one. Well, it <laughs> check, is. It, it's, check your deposit account. I can do that know, one. I mean, that is that is possibly the most important. I mean, I know you're going to say piles more interesting things as we go on over the next <laughs> half an hour, but I have to say I believe that this is the most important financial advice you can give anyone in the UK at the moment. If you look at your deposit account. I bet you will find that you're still making 1%, 1.5%, possibly significantly less. And you can move that money and make a risk-free two or three percentage points more in a matter of minutes. Well, I don't know how many minutes it takes to open a new bank account these days, but not very many minutes. And you could do that even, in, as I say, in your investment account just by buying short, short-dated gilts. So if you haven't done that, you're literally throwing money away. You're giving it to the big financial institutions who you will always tell me that you hate. Every time I talk to them, I say, hate their bank. Well, you know what? You can take your revenge now. This is the time to take your revenge on the retail banks that you dislike so much. Go for it. Do it. They may all go bust as a result, but you know, whatever. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right. Simon, let's stick with interest rates and inflation because this is the, the key dynamic in markets, right? You said a few minutes ago that we're getting to the point where interest rates are normalizing and inflation rates are normalizing. They're coming back to where they should be. Now, that I agree with you. But if you move interest rates from the lowest they've been ever back to normal levels, if we think of four to five percent as being normal levels, and you do that faster than interest rates have ever risen for 40 years, you've got to break stuff. And everyone is now talking about what breaks, how it breaks, and how long this can go on for. Yes, and I would be very nervous about that. You, d- you don't tend to find the uh, unexploded bombs all that quickly. Um, people like to hide them for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so long, long periods of low interest rates tend to lead to a number of companies which would normally have gone bust, not going bust. In fact, the furlough loans from our government, you might remember, 
were specifically designed to stop people going bust during during lockdown uh, and did a very good job. But it means the, the normal failure of on average of, of businesses around the world hasn't happened. Uh, where do you want to be careful? At a time like this, the classic places to be careful are real estate investment. Now, the real estate shares in the market have actually fallen so far that I don't think the stock market's being silly about this. I mean, shares in stocks like land securities are half what they were, were before the pandemic. And actually, they haven't borrowed as much money as they used to. So that that's probably an area where people know to worry and it's right to worry. Private individuals, I'm sure, will know some young families who've recently taken out a mortgage for their first home who didn't expect mortgage rates to go up this far. So it'll also have an effect, I'm afraid, on a few unlucky people who weren't expecting mortgage rates to go up. And it will squeeze consumer spending later this year. Um, So one needs to keep an eye on that. Uh, But the part of the market which I think is debt funded and, and isn't understood as being debt funded is what I call immature technology and immature biotech. So we know that the last cycle was built up out of people getting very excited about technology stocks and and a lot of them doing very, very well. But they themselves got used to free cash. They got used to being able to hire very large workforces, pay them in shares and expect to build their business and come to the market fairly early to pay everyone off. And all of those gates have closed. The banks aren't able to lend them any money, even if they've got a good app or a good uh, good new drug in development. And the stock market won't allow them to IPO that early. So I'm afraid that there's probably going to be quite a lot of quite good businesses out there, which just are going to find their timing very unfortunate. And this is in a part of the market most people at the moment think is really safe. They think technology is not debt funded. Well, we saw from Silicon Valley Bank, it is debt funded. You know, every, everything has to be paid for. It's just it's not in loans against real estate, which was the classic problem from previous cycles. Hmm. What about the wall of money we keep hearing about in the private equity world that is just sitting there to pick up all these companies and help them out? Yeah, well, it might be a bit stretched because uh, as I, I know that you see an interview every now and again, the chairman of the Midwine board, Professor Russell Napier, who never tires, <laughs> never tires from telling anyone who will listen, including me, that the total amount of debt in the system is is so much higher than it ever has been. And what I find interesting about his point here is that the large public companies that I invest in, the Googles of this world, um, the Thermo Fishers of this world, the um, Siemens even, these companies actually have got much less debt than they've had for most of my career, which is quite a long one. So it's not public companies who've borrowed. A lot of the debt seems to be in private equity. And so... Although the private equity people, you know, are still around and looking to pick up um, anything from a fourth seller and you see the odd bid out there, um, one suspects that the total amount, that the adjustment that they're going to have to face from a zero interest rate world to a three and a half percent interest rate world could be quite tricky and it's very opaque. Mm. So I suspect that when the unexploded bombs go off, some of them will be in the private equity world. But trying to find out where is almost impossible because they don't, unlike public equity people, they don't have to give out that much information. Mm, mm. And that, that is why, of course, so many of the private equity trusts are trading on such whopping great discounts, isn't it? Because no one yeah. quite trusts what's going on under the bonnet. Yeah. And, and also, they, they will have a lot of these early stage growth companies. I mean, there's lots of different sorts of private equity. Some some take private, very old companies like Cabris, and mm. some some of them just start up small biotech and small tech. Um, but again, I remember in 2000, 2003, right at the end of the, the TMT bubble, the big quoted stocks went down first. But even in 2003, it was the unquoted, which was still being written down, and they had to be written down to zero most of the time. Yeah, no one wants to write the stuff in their private equity portfolio down, do they? So the longer they can hold it off, the better. Yeah, and, and, the, and the rules, this is where it all gets quite difficult, but the rules on how you write it down are quite hard to apply, whereas in, in public markets, you just look at the share price. The market makes forces you to face reality early. Mm, mm. Okay, well, let's let's talk about the listed market then. And look, when, when, we, when we did that interview I was talking about earlier in 2019, 
teen, one of our big topics of conversation with valuations and how it was very, very hard to find any particular sector or geographical market where you could invest and do so at a, at a price that made long-term sense. I think at, at the time you were still relatively interested in the Japanese market, which was looking relatively cheap, still is. Um, and how has that changed over the last three years? When you look around, do you see uh, more or possibly less that looks reasonable value? I'd say that valuations are not particularly cheap. I'd say they're okay. I mean, the, the global equity universe that I look at is dominated by America. Mm-hmm. And the, the standard and pause is on 17 times earnings and a yield of 1.7% for next year. So with that hurdle that you can get 3.5% in the bank, going off and buying a load of equity is not the easiest thing to do. You've got to have a reason to do it. On the other hand, Three and a half percent in the bank is probably going to lose you a bit of purchasing power if inflation stays where it is. Now, the good news on inflation, there are two bits to inflation. One bit is um, the cost of living, you know, prices. And the good news on that is that the oil price is a lot lower now than it was a year ago. So we live in a world of $85 Brent, $123 a year ago when Putin went into Ukraine. So we probably won't see so much inflation in goods prices this uh, over the middle part of this year, over the summer, uh, which is good news. On the other hand, wage inflation is still holding pretty high, and that will feed inflation in other areas. So um, the inflationary pressures are less than they were, but they're still high, and they still make a difference to which stock you want to be in. Yeah. So um, do we think valuations are cheap? We think that they're okay. Do we think the world is a safer place to go into, yes, because inflation might have shot out even further last year. And it seems now to be sort of leveling out a bit, but but very persistent. So don't we're not going to expect interest rates to go down anytime soon. Uh, so what does that mean in terms of stocks and shares? Well, you've got, you've got to buy stocks that are growing and you've got to buy stocks that aren't going to, where well, you're not going to give up most of your gains to wage inflation. And you've got to buy stocks which don't spend too much time talking to their bankers. Um, Now, fortunately, there are quite a lot of stocks like that. Um, And uh, those stocks are generally a little bit more expensive than the index, but you get a lot more back for the fact that they're growing very fast. Let's just go back one step because we keep talking about value, valuations. And I just want to ask briefly, when you talk about value, what do you mean? What represents value to you? So the two things that I keep an eye on are how much free cash flow you get per share after all costs, including uh, stock-based compensation, which is a big, big factor in American companies. Ignoring stock-based comp is is one of the biggest errors, I think, of the last couple of years, because a lot of uh, uh, technology companies have just been paying their staff in shares. And when your share price goes down, all these people look at their share options and they say, I haven't got any money. (laughs) And they're highly paid computer programmers, and they're very mobile. So suddenly that stock-based compensation, which hasn't been a cash deduction from earnings, hasn't been a seen as a, a cost to the business for shareholders. Suddenly, if you want to keep your programmers, you've got to start paying them some cash. So, And this happened again in 2003. So you can suddenly find, if you don't adjust these earnings figures properly, uh, you can find a sudden very sharp increase in the cost, very sharp decrease in what's mm. left over for shareholders. Uh, and in the case of big companies like um, Facebook or, or Amazon, Amazon has, I think, 1.5 million employees, many of whom are, are not on high wages, most of whom work, at, work in the warehouses, but they're still facing a lot of, a lot of cost inflation. And people, people in the technology sector are not used to modelling for cost inflation. <laughs> you know, no. it's, it's, not, it's not what they're interested in. So you've got to keep an eye out for that sort of thing. Uh, I should just add something. You mentioned my keenness on Japan. I, mm. I should mention Japan was dreadful last year. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I, I took my profits. We took our profits in the fund in some of these technology shares, and we, we wanted to get better value for money. And the other side of the valuation in equities that we look at is how much book value you get per share. Because if the earnings of a company disappoint, you still got the sort of intrinsic value of the business. So we think it's worth trying to work out what, what would this business be worth even in really bad economic conditions. And Japanese companies, you get a lot of company for your money. You get a lot of plant, you get a lot of market share. They don't always make a lot of money, 
but they, they do dominate certain industries around the world. So, so you have that resilience. Unfortunately, the yen went down a lot last year, and, and that meant that our Japanese investments didn't perform very well. But I am much more positive about Asia in general this, this year. And I think what, one of the things which could be really, really positive for investors on top of inflation being under control is, is just that Asia was still locked down until the end of last year, particularly China, obviously, with the extended COVID measures. And um, China coming out of lockdown, Japan coming out of lockdown late could be one of the more exciting global trends on consumption and industrial demand over the next 12 months. Okay, so Asia is a big theme for you. Yeah. How are you playing that theme? So we have double the index weighting in Japan. So we have about 11 or 12% of the port, of the mid-wide portfolio in Japanese equities. Mm-hmm. Um, there are three groups of them. We own Japanese banks. Japanese banks would love it if inflation persisted because at the moment, interest rates in Japan are zero, yeah. more or less. And so banks prefer to lend a, a bit more than zero. So if they're ever allowed to lend at a bit more than zero, they'll make a lot more money than they make at the moment. And then we also own uh, some companies in Japan which trade at a discount book value and which are under pressure to reorganize themselves, basically to sell some of the cross shareholdings that they've had and buyback shares. And that, that would lead to very sharp increases in in the share prices. And I have now, to interrupt you to ask you what would make that happen, because we have been telling that story for 15 years, yes. maybe longer, maybe 20 years we've been telling that story, unwind cross shareholdings, blah, 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 blah. Yep. And sometimes it happens, but it hasn't happened in the volume that maybe you and I might have expected. So what's going to make it happen now? So the, the good news here is that for the first time in history, yes. <laughs> the new chairman of the Tokyo Stock Exchange has told them all to do this in public. Okay. And, and, that's, and that's what makes a difference. So if you look up the Nikkei newspaper headlines for last week, the new chairman of the Tokyo Stock Exchange has set, sent out a letter to over a thousand companies that trade below book value. And they said, all of you should make a public announcement of how you're going to reorganize yourself so that you don't trade below book value in future. Now, you can refuse. Uh, you can lose face, <laughs> which is not big into bad. But the pressure on them has has never been greater. And this is quite a big change. Um, the other thing I'll say is there were a number of activist investors who m- forced this change last year, and they weren't pushed away or frowned on. You know, the establishment in Japan can see that they need to make some changes. Whereas there, there was a wave of this around the time Abe came in in 2012, 2013, a few raiders turned up from America, particularly in private equity, and tried to do this. And they were pretty much told to go away. And, and you know, the establishment just said, we don't want to, we don't want Japanese business run in these dreadful American ways. And, and they had some points, you know, because uh, they don't, you know, they're not going to approve of takeovers to lay off uh, workers or anything like that. But the pressure at the moment is just to improve governance, just to improve shareholder value. And, and the number of stocks you can buy on that is smaller than it was because some of them have already worked. Um, but we, So we've got a few of those. Can you give us an example of a Japanese stock you hold that's trading below book value? We like examples. Yes, yes. Well, that, there's a company called Topan, which used to be called Topan Printing. And it owns lots of, subsid- lots of controlling stakes in very, very good subsidiary companies. Um, but if it just sold those stakes and used its cash, it could cancel half its shares and you'd end up with the same business <laughs> for half the number of shares. So the share price would double. I mean, it's, it's quite simple. And and the board's always known this, but they found life very comfortable <laughs> having, a, having a wildly overcapitalized, very rich business, which, uh, which you know, chugs along. Mm. So it's, the interesting thing here is that there were there are two printing businesses in Japan. The other one's called Dai Nippon Printing. And the other one's already done this over the last six months. And its shares are up 40%, I think. So all that they've got to do is not be the only one left who hasn't done the right thing. That's it. And its core, um, and, uh, and its core business is solid. So if it sells off all these yeah, subsidiary stakes, exactly. And, and you don't want to buy something where the core business isn't solid. But, mm. but it, yeah, it, it's a it's a solid low growth business. 
Um, but I thought you only approved of high growth businesses. Oh, literally, well, you, you literally know. just told us a matter of three minutes ago. No, what I said to you was that I approve of high growth businesses if you can find cheap ones. Right. But but during a period of higher inflation, you need a balanced portfolio, which has some more modest growing companies on very low, very, very low ratings like this, and also balanced with some higher growth businesses, which are still not bite your hand off cheap. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that the well-known growth businesses in the world are bite your hand off cheap. I don't think they are. Um, so you need some balance in the portfolio. I think that that's key now that interest rates are higher. Mm. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm, okay, so if we're looking for cheap um, and relatively low growth, what about the UK? Uh, well, interestingly, um, so on my list of average multiples of stock markets, yeah. which is not which is not a good way of doing valuation, as you know, because each stock market, the average multiple is more about the mix than about the stocks in it. Um, but yeah, so the uh, the S and P index in America, as I said, is seventeen times earnings. Japan, fifteen times earnings. Japan used to be more expensive, mm. e even on just an earnings multiple. So it's it's no longer as expensive as it was. And then, yes, bottom of the class come the UK, 10 times earnings, and Hong Kong, which has got problems on yeah. nine times earnings. Um, and the reason for that in the UK, as you know, is the biggest stocks in our index are banks and oil companies, mining companies, and they all tend to trade on very low earnings multiples because the earnings go down from time to time. Mm. So when the oil price goes down, you know, uh, anyone who buys BP on six times earnings needs to check whether that six times earnings when the oil price is very high, because then when the earnings oil price goes down, of course, it won't be on six times earnings, it'll be on 12 times earnings. So, you know, so these PE things move around in cyclical sectors. And the trouble with the Hong Kong market and the UK market is they've got very large very good, but very cyclical stocks in it. So the, the comparisons are not entirely fair. All the same, I have more UK stocks now than I've had for years. I have less Americans waiting than I've had for years. Mm -hmm. um, and I have more European waiting than I have for years. So yeah, I, I don't think America is 
full of cheap shares. And that's quite a big change from the way in which, on my way of doing valuations, the way in which the market looked between 2010 and I'd say 2020. Most of the time we could find American businesses which were not a lot more expensive than the rest of the world. Now we can't. Okay. So let's go back to talking about some of the uh, big themes that you're thinking about at the moment. So we've talked a bit about Asia uh, as a theme, and that's partly on valuation grounds and partly on growth grounds. Yeah. China reopening will be the really big economic news this year. But you're not actively invested in China, in Chinese stocks themselves. You don't need to be. Um, so the way in which we invest in China, we, we're actually considerably more exposed to the Chinese economy than the index. But we right. do it through investments in other parts of the world, most particularly in luxury goods companies, which are quoted in Europe. So, so the big, biggest holdings in the fund are companies like Louis Vuitton, uh, which managed to sell yet again, managed to sell... I think 20% more handbags last year than the year before, and they managed double digits the year before, the year before that. I mean, it's an astonishing It's a mystery, isn't it? How many, handbag, how many handbags do you have, Simon? Yeah, I'm, prob- I'm probably not the target audience, Merrin, so I, th- I think you could probably help me on this one. <laughs> I have quite a lot of handbags, but none, <laughs> none, none, very, none very expensive. I just don't think I could bring myself to pay that kind of money for a handbag. Well, And it's, well, it's they- a... It's a Endless mystery to me, the whole thing. Uh, it's a mystery to me, but I'm a very happy shareholder. We've owned these shares. This has been the biggest holding of the fund since we launched the unit trust 12 years ago. It's the, the biggest profit we've made over that period. So luxury goods sales are, a, are one of the classic ways of uh, getting exposure to um, China. We've just bought some shares in Estee Lauder, which, um, again, the Chinese buy a lot of cosmetics from Estee Lauder in particular, more than from L'Oreal. Um, why? So that, why? 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 Why Estee Lauder? I, I think you'd have I mean, to. There is also there are so many amazing Asian <laughs> makeup and skincare brands. The yes, Japanese there are. and the Koreans yeah. are brilliant at this stuff. Why Estee Lauder? Are you the wrong person to ask? Aren't you? Uh, I, I'm possibly all you, the wrong All person. you know is that they do, not why they do. I, I look at the data <laughs> and I notice how fast the sales stopped. I mean, literally stopped overnight when um, zero COVID policy was brought in. Mm. And, and it's particularly, these are sales inland. So it's, it's, it's not actually just Chinese people traveling to the rest of the world. When they go down to Hainan Island, they buy a lot down there and they buy very high end stuff. And no doubt they find that the Estee Lauder cosmetics particularly work for them. Um, just as much as they particularly like Hermes and Louis Vuitton handbags, and they don't, you know, they won't pay up so much for um, other brands. Um, so I just trust the data. And um, you know how they say you should only invest in things you understand, Simon. <laughs> yeah, well, hmm. um, that would leave me with a very narrow portfolio, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, okay. uh, what, what other ways if, uh, have you got for, uh, to get into investing in China without actually investing in China, without taking the political risk which comes with uh, being in China itself? Well, the other interesting area has been um, a lot of European companies, major German companies, are very successful in China. They're, they're more successful in their investments in China, I'd say, in proportion than some of them have been in America. And in the autumn last year, when everyone thought the world was going to come to an end and we're going to run out of gas and we'd have to turn the lights off in Europe, a lot of these European, fantastic European market leaders, world leaders, uh, were trading on the lowest ratings I'd ever seen them on. So we bought shares in in companies like Schneider and Siemens, which will benefit from American growth more than Chinese growth. But all the same, they've all got good Chinese businesses inside them. Um, And then on top of that, American healthcare companies, particularly diagnostic companies, make a decent amount of money selling high-tech equipment to China. Now, of course, in the middle of all this, we've got to be very careful that you don't invest in a business which could get caught between this increasing trade spat between America and China. Mm. Um, but at the moment, there's no sign that the Chinese, the Chinese may want to argue about semiconductors. And I understand their point of view here because they're sort of being locked out. But that doesn't mean to say they're going to stop buying American diagnostic equipment 
or insulin made by Novo Nordisk. I mean, they're still open to trade with the world, particularly in areas where you know your company makes stuff that they want. Making sure that you're investing mainly in businesses which have got a really powerful market position like that is important quite outside the Chinese environment. This is about in a, in a difficult world, which will no doubt face more problems in future. Hmm. What about India? Indian population overtaking the Chinese population. Um, and for years, we've been talking about India as, you know, about to break through, about to be the, <laughs> you know, the fastest growing, greatest economy ever, except it hasn't quite happened. But it feels like with everyone wanting possibly to shift some of their investments from China towards other developing countries, that now might be India's time. Are you invested there? Uh, we're not. We do have licenses uh, to invest there. Um, and we, we've missed out. I mean, it was the best em performing emerging market last year. So mm. I can't claim it's been a good idea. There are two troubles I've had with India. Firstly, I find all of, all of the best companies I find very, very expensive indeed. Mm -hmm. There's a very large domestic investing public. Yeah. And so that public can't take their money out of India easily and invest it around the rest of the world. So that's probably one of the reasons why the shares tend to look expensive. And then secondly, if India does open up to trade more, it can always, there'll, there'll always be losers as well as winners. Uh, and so, you know, everyone in the world keeps knocking on India's door saying, would you like to join this trade agreement, that trade agreement, trade with mm. us more. Um, but they've generally got a domestic industry that they know might be quite fragile if it was opened up and you don't want to be invested in them. Okay, not India then. Um, other Asian economies that are interesting? Um, I think one thing, I mean, I'm very underweight emerging markets at the moment. And I think it's important that I just go back to what I said earlier about the total weight of debt in the world being mm. very, very high. That Although I think that this is a perfectly good time to invest in equities and to invest in very strong equities, I don't see any point in taking any risks you don't have to take. Because the trouble is, we've got this background of massive amounts of debt, massive amounts of government debt. We haven't got markets where central banks are supporting the market anymore because they're trying to stop doing uh, this bond buying that they've been doing for 15 years. In some cases, like in Japan, they're running out of bonds to buy. so <laughs> They have to stop at some point. So the shock absorbers in the system have gone away. And although at the moment I can see quite a rosy scenario for this year, the trouble is if anything bad did happen, and always something happens that you can't expect, say Putin got much rougher in, in Ukraine and, and wasn't prepared to let this war fizzle out, and, or say that the next um, attempt by OPEC to cut oil production really did take the oil price up again, markets would fall quite sharply. Mm. And companies would find it quite difficult. So my policy at the moment is safety first. And I'm afraid that that just, you know, if you can find a developed market company on a sensible rating, which will, which will grow nicely for you over the years, why go any further? Okay. I think that's a good way of looking at it, though. I would say that your Professor Napier is uh, very keen on uh, Asian equities at the moment. So we're, maybe we'll come back to that with him another time. Now, there are a few more things that I want to, I want to ask you. But the, the first one is, is about... He wrote, he, he, wrote, he wrote the book about the Great, a great Asian Crisis and made yes. me read it. He did. Well, we Anyhow. all read it. We all read it. And, and extremely good it is, too. Highly recommended, by the way, listeners. In fact, anything written by Russell Napier is highly recommended. Um I wanted to ask you about ESG. Now, we've talked yeah. about ESG in the past and ESG overlays on portfolios, et cetera, et cetera. But the last couple of years and the last year in particular have shown us many of the weaknesses of the approach that lots of fund managers have taken to ESG and things that were not considered to be ESG friendly only 18 months ago are now considered to be very, very ESG friendly. I give you defense, etc. And uh, you can even now, and I do, make an excellent argument for fossil fuels being ESG friendly. Well, I mean, if you, if you would take the S seriously and you'd like people's living standards to be maintained, then obviously you should consider the fossil fuel industry as part of that. Anyway, moving on from that, because hate mail, by the way, to the usual address. Um, <laughs> Simon, have you changed your approach to ESG over the last couple of years, or do you think that there are changes that people should be taking into account? I'm delighted to say we haven't changed our approach at all. Because it was um, perfect. Because we've thought about these things quite seriously, 
And and we've seen the ESG agenda go from not taking it seriously mm-hmm. to coming up with a sort of prescription-based, bizarre, totally impractical tick list, and now perhaps in some ways back to where we where we started. So yeah. the the ESG score on our on our funds when all this first started about five years ago came through, and and it turned out that we were top decile, I think, amongst all funds. And we just said, oh, that's interesting. We've never looked at it that way. But of course, we don't invest in bad businesses that pollute the planet because they're bad. Uh, and um, why would we? And and then, amazingly, as you say, a couple of years ago, our ratings started going down because we own things like copper mines that you need in order to do the energy transition. You, you can't do it without copper. It's quite yeah. simple. Um, and yes, we own a gas company now in the investment trust because the Western world needs secure sources of gas so it doesn't rely on Russia. And, you know, getting hydrocarbon prices up for poor people is not a acceptable policy. It doesn't mean to say that net zero is undoable. It's just you've got to be practical about how long it's going to take, how much it's going to cost, and make sure that voters go with you. And so... We think we've run a balanced approach here. We have a large amount of the fund invested in energy transition, companies that will help energy transition. We have a, a particular holding that I'm very proud of, which is, well, please, hopeful for, let's put it this way, which is Panasonic. Yes, again, a Japanese company, but it, it's one of Tesla's biggest battery makers. And, and it never it's never managed to make much money out of this. But you can imagine with, with, the, with this massive bill that Biden's passed in America to encourage energy transition in general and more use of electric vehicles. Panasonic's got two of the biggest battery plants in America, one one of them a joint venture with Tesla. They're going to be paid for making a lot more batteries and they're going to be a lot more profitable for it. And it trades on 12 times earnings. You know, you get a lot of company for your money. And of course, the Americans, the American investors have looked through Wall Street for companies that will benefit from the Inflation Reduction Act, but most of them don't, you know, they've never looked at Panasonic. It's in Japan, you know, mm. so you miss this out. And then we balance it with companies like First Soda, which is the biggest solar panel, you know, industrial solar panel maker in America, which is a very expensive stock. It's probably the most expensive stock in the portfolio. But again, going back to what I was saying, energy transition will happen. Mm. I think people are getting closer to being realistic about the cost and the timescales. Mm-hmm. The timescales may not be what the scientists want, Mm-mm. but they have to be what the politics, I'm afraid, and, and the business reality will allow. Well, it also has to be a balance between the short term, the medium term and the long term. You know, we can't plunge yeah. everybody into poverty in the short and medium term for a constantly shifting long term target. As I say, hate mail to the normal address. Can I ask you, Simon, um, have you got any investments at all in, uh, in the upgrading of um, electricity grids, of the national grid, for example? I mean, I'm, I'm currently obsessed with the uh, fact that our national grid was put up, you know, 100 odd years ago uh, with the idea of taking yeah. in power from a set number of large power stations and now finds itself taking in power from tens of thousands of different smaller energy producers, be they offshore wind farms or, um, you know, your second cousin's solar panel on their roof, etc. And it makes it an incredibly fragile thing, uh, which is also someone was pointing out to me the other day. The global national electricity grid is the largest thing that humankind has ever created. The biggest thing ever, ever. And yet in most developed countries, it's also horribly, horribly out of date and in no way whatsoever fit for purpose. So this seems to me to be one of the greatest investment opportunities there is participating in the upgrade of this global out-of-date network. Anything in that? I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. I love that. Couldn't agree with you more. So Siemens, oddly enough, which I've mentioned already, is one of the biggest, um, it's one of the first companies you'll ring up if you want your grid mended mm. uh, and updated. And it's about a third of the business is geared into that. And secondly, if you have lots of little wind farms around a grid and they produce wind in the middle of the night when nobody needs it, what do you need to store the electricity? Batteries. Thus, Panasonic again. Mm. Um, so that's the combination you really need. In the investment trust, we also have a holding in a UK battery company called Gore Street, which is a investment trust which just owns battery storage in the UK and pays a six and a bit percent yield 
every year for helping manage the British grid. Uh, and it's also been investing. It's bought some battery storage plants in um, in America, in Texas, actually, and also in Germany. Because, uh, again, going back to the engineering reality of this, uh, as you say, people have talked about grid um, grid improvements for at least 20 years, but it actually seems to be happening now. Well, it has um, to happen now. I mean, if it's, it it's has a, to happen it now. Is, yeah. It's the core part of the energy transition. Without full-on grid upgrade, yep. everything else is pointless. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, yeah, I mean, we have a nice exposure to that. Um, and, and that covers the, you know, that covers two of the really big areas. We've talked about emerging market consumers we invest in. We invest in energy transition. We invest in automation that mm-hmm. I talked to you about before, which, mm-hmm. you know, just um, inflation, of course, particularly wage inflation, pushes people to invest more in robotics and uh, plant automation, but also automations coming into other industries like agriculture, even surgery. Robots are getting cleverer, smarter. And and then the other big area we invest in is healthcare, because I'm afraid the healthcare costs of the world are going to carry on being one of the main drivers of economics, tax spending policy, um, certainly for the next 20, 25 years. Um, and, and in a funny sort of way, the pandemic actually was a period which wasn't very stressful for the health service. This may come as a shock for people, but of course, most of us didn't go anywhere near a hospital for two years. No, I did actually go near a couple of hospitals and it was absolutely amazing how little was going on. Absolutely <laughs> nothing, nothing. Yeah, well, you know, we were, we were told to stay away. We did stay away and yeah. probably saved a few people's lives. You know, the people who had to go, unfortunately, of course, they did a very good job of saving. Um, but yeah, we're, we're back now to the normal dynamic, which Fed spending in this area or, mm. or yeah, demand mm. in this area of an aging population, which expects top class treatment. And there are lots of very high quality companies one can invest in. You know, Simon, I don't think there's an old person left in the UK who expects top quality treatment. They'd like top quality treatment. What do you think they actually expect? Um. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. I, I, I fear that people do expect it. and then, um, Well, then they've got a world of I, disappointment ahead, haven't they? <laughs> I think that, well, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a different subject. But just on the investment side, yeah. um, the great thing is that there's a, such a long list of really high-quality companies. Um, but in healthcare, I, I, I tend to avoid the drug companies because – the drug company's business is inventing cures for things that there aren't good cures for at the moment, which are often very rare diseases and where you need to spend a very large amount of money on a very small number of patients to cure mm. them. And I, I just think that the system won't won't be spending money on that because the money will be needed for old-fashioned care, proven technology, old-fashioned technology, a lot more diagnostics, a lot more medical equipment, hips and knees, you know, so, so hearing you, aids. Hips and knees. I need knees. Someone give me new knees. Now, listen, what's your top healthcare holding? Uh, so I think the best one for me on this, at the moment anyway, is um, uh, the one I've probably mentioned today anyway, is Sonova, which is one of the world's biggest hearing aid companies. And um, the world of people who need hearing aids, mm-hmm. because because they're feeling a bit stressed on their on their, um personal account uh, because of the cost of living. None of them upgraded their hearing aids. Few of them upgraded their hearing aids last year. Hmm. And they're all coming back to do it this year because everyone feels a bit more confident and people are going out more and the hearing aids keep getting better. These are the teeny little digital ones which need tuning up to your ear, um, but which, you know, are a massive improvement on the old hearing aids, which were basically just loud speakers stuck in your ear. Um, yeah. And the, these these shares are, you know, there are three or four companies in the world that make the really good hearing aids. They're mainly European companies. Mainly, most of them are based in in the Benelux. And um, yeah, I mean, the the trend at the moment seems to be that people are going back to getting their hearing sorted, uh, and that's before you get all the people who've been on the tube with their earpods in for the last 20 years is with that the gonna, music. Is that going to put up the demand for hearing aids? Do you think Apple is going to release a hearing aid product? I, I, th- 
I don't think it. I don't. Come on, no, I mean, I it's, it's absolutely standard, brilliant corporate policy to create they, a need for a product and then build the product. Something to watch. They, you heard it here first. They, they ought to. Get, they ought to get a hearing aid that can. Yeah, that can Bluetooth. I don't know. Perhaps hearing aids can Bluetooth into your iPhone. <laughs> I have no idea. Why not? Uh, but if, if they don't now, it, it probably won't be them. It'll be you know Sonova who will make a hearing aid which has good Bluetooth and. Um, what's the other thing? Noise cancellation, that'll be the thing. But noise cancellation is actually part of how hearing aids work. Yes. Sorry, yes. go into this. Yeah, no, so we're going great... another tangent, tangent alert. Tangent. <laughs> Look, we've got to call an end to this. I always say podcasts right. shouldn't be more than 25 minutes or people get terribly bored. But you've You're been a bit right. longer than that, and I know they won't have got bored for a second. So last question. Um, oh, God, I said we were going to talk about the person taking over from you at the trust. You know what? We're not going to do that. They're going to have to read about that on, on the internet at a later date. But here you are. You're heading off into retirement. You can dig into that portfolio of yours at Midwind and you can take one stock with you. Which one would it be? Oh, I think I think, I think the best company for the future that, I, that I've got in the fund is Thermo Fisher, world's leading scientific equipment makers, one of the cleverest companies I've ever met, one of the best managed not cheap, but who cares? Okay, Simon, uh, not cheap. Is that the right way to end? It'll do. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I hope that we will talk again before you slide off, actually, maybe a little, a little short interview at the end of the year. But thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We will be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, do please rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I repeat the bit, if you like our show, if you don't like our show, please do not mention it to anybody. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Sam Asadi and Mohamed Farouk. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Simon Edelston and to John Stepek. And finally, do not forget to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes. Do sign up. You definitely won't regret it. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.